everyone, and welcome back to Moving Right Along, a Muppet movie podcast brought to you by ToughPigs.com. It's the podcast where we have been watching Muppet Christmas Carol two minutes at a time and talking about it a lot. I'm your host, Anthony Strand. And I'm your other host, Ryan Rowe. And joining us today, we are thrilled to welcome a very special guest star. Guest, who are you? I'm Dave Goals, one of the Muppet performers. What? Amazing. It's, it's everyone. It's Dave Goals. Wow. So... Today, we are not discussing two minutes of Muppet Christmas Carol. We are discussing the entirety of Muppet Christmas Carol, because as everyone listening to this surely knows, Dave Goals was there. Thank you so much for coming (laughs) on the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be with you guys. So we're just going to kind of have a a loose, free-flowing conversation about the movie today. Um, Hopefully, we'll try to ask you some things that you haven't been asked a thousand times. So anything that you're tired of answering, please just go ahead and tell us. I'm, I've been there. Okay. I've done that. I don't want to talk about that anymore. Or if there's okay. something you wish people would ask you about the movie that they haven't, let us know. Okay. Yeah. So first, let's go back to the very beginning. Do you remember the first time you heard that they were doing Muppet Christmas Carol? And what what did you think of the idea? Well, it wasn't long after Jim had died that the uh, idea came along and was put in place and set in motion. Um, I, I, I thought it sounded great. Coincidentally, I had never seen a film of of the Christmas Carol. No kidding. Um, yeah, just just as it happened, I had never seen it, and I decided to wait until after we made ours before I looked at one. And when we got done, I, I was so pleased with ours, and I'm always so moved by it that um, when I did see others, I I thought, well, you know, ours stands up pretty well. You know, it's it in spite of having pigs and dogs and chickens in it, it. It is res- highly respectful of the story and tells it in a very emotional way. Yeah, it's actually more faithful than a lot of other adaptations, which, like you say, is strange for a, a Muppet adaptation. Well, I've heard that there is um, the staff at the uh, Charles Dickens Museum in London considers this their favorite Christmas Carol. Oh wow! Movie, and I, that's and really I, something because there's so many. I know it, it's it's staggering to think of. Sure. Well, and I I think it also has probably been a lot of people's introduction to the story i mean you know as you know i was a kid when it came out sure it was the first one i ever saw so i think it's kept it alive for you know i mean obviously whatever christmas carol's doing fine but i think that Muppet christmas carol is something that keeps it in the hearts of a lot of people you know well it does and it introduces people to it as you say um I know that my conception of it was that Scrooge was a skinny old angular character. And, and it turns out that, uh, you know, the best known version is like that. When I heard that uh, they were considering Michael Caine for the role, I thought, gee, that sounds, that sounds off. He's, he's, he's kind of rounded and soft and he doesn't seem harsh in the way that I would imagine Scrooge. But once I saw him play the part, I became utterly convinced because it, it truly is a redemption story and he completely inhabits that character. Right. Yeah. And what was it like working with Michael Caine? I mean, any, any stories oh. from about him you'd like to share? Um, well, I, there are a couple odds and ends that people probably already know, but uh, he is a complete professional. He, he, you know, when this is the only time I guess we worked with him, but he would stay in his trailer all day long with his dresser and the two of them would run lines. And so whenever Michael Caine came to set, he was letter perfect on the script. He was a complete professional. 
And he shared one of his film techniques, which I had not heard before about him or anybody for that matter. Uh, and that was that he never blinks on camera. You'll never see oh, a blink. So that's really true. He feels that a blink interrupts the contact with the audience. Huh. And when you oh. try to do that, if you try it as an exercise right now, your eyes will burn. <laughs> right. Somehow he trained himself to, uh, to get beyond that. Wow. I have to say, I've seen a clip, I think, of Kermit talking about that. And I assumed that was just a joke because obviously Kermit never blinks. But that's fascinating that that was a real Michael Caine technique. Yeah, it's for real. And, yeah. and uh, he, I mean, he's, he's a lovely guy and he's just such a pro. I, I, I was, oh, my God, I was just so, so impressed by working with him. He's really something. Do you remember if there were any other names floated? There's some rumors like floating around on IMDb and stuff about other, like it says George Carlin may have been considered at one point, but we were not able to verify. Not, whether not that, that I heard true. of. No, yeah, I, okay. I, the first I heard it was, it was possibly going to be Michael Caine. Yeah. And the second thing I heard was that it was going to be. Yeah. And he's great. <laughs> oh my God. He's just amazing. I mean, he's, he yeah. certainly inhabits that role. It's just so profound. You know, as a redemption story, it's it's so moving in his hands. It's just so moving. And he decided in the beginning to play it absolutely straight. Yeah. And and that was a wise decision. Yeah. Well, and so there's basically two lead characters in the movie, right? Mr. Scrooge and Gonzo. So Michael Caine played one of them and you played the other. Well, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's exactly uh, the, the case. Uh, I was I was not even in the movie. Gonzo was Charles Dickens. He was the author. <laughs> that's 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 true um but do you remember um how did it feel for gonzo to have such a big part because or, or for charles dickens to have such a big part rather because he really i mean he'd been in the other movies but not not as front and center as this one well it was an an interesting process that led to this jerry jewel when he was writing the screenplay really loved the dickensian prose he loved the language and the book of course is narrated by a you know a, a third person and that narration is so beautifully written. It's just absolutely beautiful. Jerry wanted some way to get that language in there without having a narrator, because, you know, a narrator is kind of an intrusion into a film oftentimes. And so uh, naturally he thought of Gonzo. <laughs> and I, I think part of the reason that he had thought of Gonzo was that um, Jerry and I were close friends. We were, we were good friends. So we talked a lot and he knew that I was going through therapy at the time and I was learning a lot about, uh, about my life and, and I was making some big changes and somehow he thought that I think he connected my transformation that I was going through with Gonzo's uh, or sorry, with Scrooge's transformation. And, hmm. and, and he also saw the comedic potential of that. And then I, and it was Jerry uh, Jewell also who thought of pairing Gonzo and Rizzo, which was their first time as a pair. And that was unbelievable fun to work with Rizzo, <laughs> you know? Sure. Well, cause you, so you and Steve had, I mean, I, I always think of Boober and Wembley Fraggle as one, one of the great pairs on that show. Mm -hmm. So did you guys feel like you had that chemistry already established, even though the characters didn't at that time? Oh yeah. Or? Oh yeah. Well, it, this is what's, kind of was happening traditionally with Muppet performers. First, it was Jim and Frank, who just became a comedy duo with Ernie and Bert and, and everything else they did, eventually Kermit and Piggy. Um, 
and they could leave spaces for each other to speak. You know, they could leave a pause, knowing that the other person uh, would be set up by something they had said. And mm -hmm. they just bounced off each other incredibly well. Then the next pairing was Jerry Nelson and Richard Hunt. Mm. And those two could do the same thing. They were friends outside of work, and they could they could really um, they could speak in code, you know, <laughs> to each other, and they knew exactly what to do to play off each other. Um, I developed that on Fraggle Rock with Stevie, and so the two of us could literally just speak in shorthand and just say, "Oh, I know. When I come in, we'll do such and such." Oh yeah, got it. Enough said. And we would just play a scene that way. Uh, just based on the minimal minimal language between us, minimal you know just just keywords, um, and so when we found that we were going to work together on on you know with Gonzo and Rizzo on Christmas Carol, we just really relished it because Rizzo is the comedy relief, Gonzo is suddenly playing a serious part which he hadn't done before, yeah. and I really I really relish that i look forward to playing a serious part with gonzo it, it, it sort of represented the third phase in his growth you know the first phase was insecurity and then he became um very uh secure and gung-ho <laughs> and this was a third development in his character which was the soulfulness and uh having rizzo along for comedy comic relief was terrific and we had a lot of fun we we did some ad-libbing and we just had a great time working those two characters. And, and, you know, Brian Henson said something interesting while we were shooting that movie. Um, he observed that when you have a very emotional scene, if you insert something funny, it makes people laugh and it catches them off guard. And the next thing they know, they're crying. And hmm. I, I don't know what you call that phenomena, but I noticed it and I realized that uh, I can't get through the movie dry-eyed and you know ever i've never gotten through it dry-eyed sure. because it's just so profoundly affecting so to use gonzo and rizzo for that purpose just seemed perfect there is a moment in uh one of the behind the scenes features where brian henson talks about the the scene where rizzo jumps off the gate and then it turns out that he could have gone through the bars the whole time and gonzo says you are such an idiot brian henson says that that was all kind of made up on the set because they realized they, they needed a way to get Gonzo and Rizzo around to the other side of Scrooge's house. So did you, you just kind of ad-libbed all that? I can't or, remember or whether that on the spot. I think the business of, I think it was written that, that Rizzo uh, was afraid to jump and Gonzo right. said he would catch him and he missed him. But um, the ad-lib part was, uh, at least to my recollection was uh, you are such an idiot. Cause I just right. sort of made, I just threw it in and Brian cracked up and. Yeah. That's it. hilarious. And, yeah. yeah, it is funny that it allows Gonzo to be kind of sarcastic and exasperated at another character's foolishness. Oh, yeah, I know, which is ironic. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It It's kind of amazing how well it works, though. Like like you said, it's a new direction for him, but it feels it all feels so natural. Oh, yeah. I, and I, I still treasure it. I treasure having had the opportunity to say those those lines, you know, that. The writing Dickens stuff, you mean? Yeah. Just oh, yeah. all the things that Dickens wrote, all the narrative stuff. Um, it was nice to have it in the movie. I mean, because you needed it. And it was just, it felt so good to have Gonzo develop another dimension that was more soulful. And and so this right. becomes, you know, a little menu of things that we can use with him. We could use the 
outcast we can use the uh you know the crazy stunt performer and we can also use the soulful side of him so it becomes a very fleshed out character sure well and on the topic of you reading the the dickens prose i've read the book several times it's one of my favorite books yeah and i i hear gonzo's voice in my head every time (laughs) sorry well no 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 no. it's it's wonderful it's a gift i mean it it's it feels like such a great marriage of of the character and that and that prose and it's they've just kind of become one in my mind you know i'll tell you it was just an honor to work on a property like that it was such a piece of literature that it was just wonderful it was just a thrill to be a part of it. I, yeah, I bet. Um, I wanted to ask you about Brian Henson because you you had all known him since he was a, a kid. I mean, he's what? He's about, uh, what, 13 when you started on The Muppet Show? Oh, I don't know. You, you, you can look it up. But uh, yeah, he, I, when I met him was in 73, which was uh, three years before The Muppet Show. And he was, I'm thinking, below 10. He was hmm. right. So know, seven or eight or nine, something like that. So was it a, was it a, strange transition to him being the director and being in charge when he not really no you're you're, no well this the strange the strange part of it was jim dying you know that we we didn't expect that it was heartbreaking and um you know jim always looked vulnerable he was thin he looked gaunt and vulnerable and he would work so hard that he would get tired and so everybody was always concerned about him but in fact he was the strongest one of all of us in fact he was probably stronger than all of us combined. He was just an amazingly willful, powerful guy who was sweet and vulnerable at the same time. Um, but we were so conditioned to him being the one who worked harder than anybody else th- that it was an absolute shock that he got sick and suddenly passed away. We were, we were just, we were bereft. You know, we, we sure. couldn't. I mean, when I heard that he was not expected to live. Uh, it took me an hour to absorb the idea. I couldn't even frame the concept in my mind. You know, it took an, sure. it literally took an hour. I had three or four phone calls with Frank Oz and David Laser. I had just gotten home from New York. We were we had we had recorded some audio the day before, and Jim had called in sick, which we were joking about because you know the idea of Jim calling in sick. He would always say we'd all start to catch the flu or something, and he would say I'll be better tomorrow. Sure enough, the next day we're all sick, except Jim is fine. So this was so far out of the realm of possibility that it literally took me an hour to absorb it. And then I had I realized I've got to go back to New York right now. And so I just turned around and flew back the same night. But uh, anyway, it was it was quite a shock. Right. So do you remember, were there, because obviously this was the first really big project after mm-hmm. Jim had died. Do you remember if there were other ideas talked about as like maybe the next thing or, or was there talk of, of maybe there not being a next thing? The day, the day that Jim died, I, I arrived back in New York around seven o'clock in the morning. People were coming in from all over the world to the office, people coming in from London, Toronto and other, you know, we, we had a far flung empire, you know, right. there were people all right, over the place. Sure. And so people were gathering and we literally just cried for a week. <laughs> but that first day, Brian uh, flew in from London and he um, sent word out that he would like the puppeteers to come over to his dad's apartment at the Sherry Netherland uh, right. at five o'clock to, to just have a chat. And so 
all day long he had been given, you know, he'd been fielding questions from the media about whether the Muppets would go on. And he said, I don't, we haven't said anything yet because we don't have any idea what we'll do. Um, but we're just, I'm interested to see whether you guys are interested in going forward. And it was me, Frank Oz, Jerry Nelson, Richard Hunt, and Steve Whitmire. And we were the remaining performers. And we, you know, again, we're all, we've been crying all day. We were just, we were, we were f just frazzled. But every one of us said, well, it feels like our life's work. I mean, it, it, it's, we, we've been, a, become adjusted to this being our life's work. And we just thought, well, uh, if there's a way to continue it, we would like to try just in Jim's memory. That's impressive that you even have the presence of mind to, to process that. Well, it was it was surreal. I can tell yeah, you. I'm sure. Um, but the the movie does kind of have a feel of getting the whole band back together, right? Um, you know, pa Paul Williams is back writing the songs. Jerry mm -hmm. Jewell wrote the screenplay. Did it feel like that? Did it feel like like, like the whole family kind of kind of getting back together for Christmas? Absolutely. I mean, one thing that you you probably already know about Jim was that he was a charismatic leader. He was the ultimate collaborator. He, he loved diversity. He brought all these different people together. Like everybody who worked for the company was a distinct personality. And we all got to be a part of it. You know, we were all uh, able to contribute. And he, he really solicited it from all of us and, and welcomed it. So, of course, we would rally. You know, if there was a way to do something in honor of Jim, at the very least, let alone continue on and keep working on the with these characters, well, then we all wanted to do that. You know, we, we there was no way anybody was going to say, "No, I'm done." Right, right, right. Yeah. Of course, of course. There's no um, way. I mean, we're. I'm, you have to also understand the the group. It. it, it, it it's a combination of unlikely bedfellows because we all were really different, you know, and I'm talking about the whole company, licensing, publishing people, uh, the uh, performers, the writers, the workshop. Jim hired strong personalities. And, and so we were, I was used to th think, well, gosh, it's like I'm working in a zoo with a bunch of natural enemies. It's like we're <laughs> on an ark here. And, and these people would kill each other in normal life, but somehow under Jim's leadership, we didn't kill each other. But we also found that people who weren't like us had something incredibly valuable to contribute and unique. Each person had something unique to bring to this enterprise. And, you know, the, the end result of that, working on things together and enjoying the richness of all that diversity, uh, it creates love. And we all, we all just love each other. You know, which is strange. Sure. <laughs> we, you know, that some people were like oil and water. They wouldn't really seek each other out in a normal scenario. But because we worked together, we made things together. We are, we are very aware of what each other, we, each of the others can contribute. I think you do feel that love, especially in this movie, just because oh, yeah. it's so heartfelt. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, it was, and you know, I understand too. It was surreal to even be making a movie without Jim. Right. Like here we found ourselves in London working with everybody that we had worked with before except Jim. Mm. So it was, it was, it felt good. It felt horrible. It was all of those things. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Thank you. Um, speaking of 
which you you took over Waldorf starting here, and you've you've talked about yes. that before. But you and Jerry Nelson are both playing Stetler and Waldorf for the first time. Did you talk yeah. about like how you were going to approach the characters, or was it just kind of intuitive? Well, let me correct you there. Actually, Jerry had played Statler in the very first uh, time, in their very oh, first event, right. which was in Sex and Violence with the Mother. Yes, thank you for pointing right. that out and saving us a few uh, Facebook comments. Yeah, but then <laughs> what happened was, <laughs> anything we can do to reduce the uh, carbon footprint here. Right. Um, but what happened was that when, when we went to do the first season of The Muppet Show, Jerry Nelson's daughter was ill, and he stayed back in the States to be with her. And uh, so he didn't come over for the first season. And therefore, Richard Hunt took over Statler for that season and then just stayed with him until his right. death. Right. And, and at which time Jerry came back in. And, uh, and uh, th th of course, that was right uh, roughly the same time that, that Jim died. Jim and Richard passed away within a year of each other. So by the time we did this movie, it was Jerry Nelson doing Statler and me doing Waldorf, which still feels like I'm just you know, keeping him warm until Jim gets back. Hmm. Oh, were those characters sort of assigned to you, or did you? Was it kind of like, does anybody want to be no, I, cast I, as the new Waldorf? Or I, I know that in the case of Waldorf, you know, um, Brian Henson asked me if I would take a shot at it, and so okay. I did. I did, um, but it's weird. Like you know, people who do Statler always ad lib. Statler is very funny. I don't tend to ad lib on set with Waldorf. I mean, the oh, stuff is all written because it's highly structured material. You can't okay. really ad lib it very easily. But um, I don't play around with Waldorf because I just don't, I feel like he's Jim's character. And I hmm. just, I, I, it's weird because now I've done Waldorf longer than Jim did. Yeah, wow. It, it just seems wrong to me. But uh, <laughs> here I am and I still haven't taken ownership. Hmm. Sure. Well, and it, and in this one, you guys have a big song number. When I say you guys, I mean Statler and Waldorf. Yes, but Statler and Waldorf have the big Marley and Marley song. Yeah. What What was that like having having a big movie song as as Waldorf? Oh, I don't know. You know, we were so used to doing music as part of our work in the Muppet Show and pretty much everything else we did that it right, wasn't right. it wasn't anything out of the ordinary to have a song. Um, I remember talking to Paul Williams about it when he was working on the song and he or actually just after he delivered it, we had a conversation and he was, he was really uh, excited about the <laughs> line in the song because he thought kids would really enjoy that. This mm. little scary sound. Um, and, and it is, it's just a signature part of the music, you know, but Paul is like that. He's just, he's just channeling. Yeah, well, it's a very funny scene, too. But also, it is also genuinely scary. There are a few really actually scary parts of the movie. Oh, yeah. When our son was a little guy, like two years old or less, he watched the movie straight through once and, and enjoyed it. And then the next time we watched it with him, which was maybe a year later, the uh, transition of the doorknob to Statler's face. Yeah scared him so much that he just backed up and he was going to go, I thought he was going to go right over the couch and off the bat. Oh, no. He was so terrified at that point in his life by that shot. And then he didn't want to watch the movie for a while after that. Yeah. That's spooky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we mentioned in our email exchange before this recording, the, the deleted song, um, 
room in your heart that the Bunsen and Beaker sang and you said you sort of didn't even remember that one? I forgot that it wasn't in there. I mean, look, it's so, weird. I, I tend to look forward and, and I look around. Oh, absolutely. I don't look in the past too much. So I don't particularly watch our old stuff very often. Right. And it's, yeah. so considering that one is not even in the movie, it makes sense that, that it wouldn't stick with you. Well, I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's a little embarrassing, but um, <laughs> I, I was actually surprised because I remember the song. I remember recording it. I just had forgotten okay. it in the movie. And I've watched the movie 10 times. At least, right. You know, sure. Um, but do you have any thoughts about Bunsen and Beaker's part in this? It's such a, it's such a change for them. You know, they're, they're not doing comedy. They're playing these very like cheerful charity. Workers. They're collecting for charity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, I guess, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we did two films that were from classic literature where the uh-huh. characters were playing roles. And I really loved that. I, I loved it for both those films. The second one was Treasure Island. And maybe we've done others. I don't remember. Well, you, did the, you did the Wizard, Wizard of, Oz of Oz TV movie. Yeah. I don't know. And I wouldn't count that too much. That's, that, <laughs> was, that was too far from the original. Uh, sure. But in these two cases, we really respected the material. And, and I think did did justice to it uh it was a pleasure i would relish the chance to do that again because it stretches the characters you take you take you know you take the essence of a character and match it up to a role in the film that feels like it's a fit and then when you start playing it you find other parts of that character that you wouldn't normally encounter so i really love that i'm, I'm all all up for doing more of those i guess it's kind of similar to what happened with Gonzo, where it's you're, you're seeing new sides of Bunsen just in this one little scene. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I and it's so much fun too. Like uh, Bunsen said, he's trying to get a donation for Scrooge, and he says, "What may I put you down for?" And I think Bill Beretta, I don't, I think Bill Beretta was doing the right hand of Bunsen at that in that shot, oh, and okay. Bill just added this little thing. Bill's an amazing right hand, <laughs> and it just came, it fell at the right spot in the dialogue, and you know, it was just a perfect Bunsen move. And, you know, we look we look for little details like that in all of our performances. Sure. And for the audience's benefit, our listeners' benefit, Dave did a little curly cue with his finger. Like <laughs> oh, does. I'm sorry. Of course. Yes. I'm looking yeah, at no, myself. No, no. No, good. Thank you. Yeah, right. yeah just yeah, these little delicate, like, finger acting moves. Oh, yeah. And there was, you know, like in Treasure Island, there were two moments that were both Bill Beretta. Uh, one was with Bunsen during the uh, the big musical number on the ship, uh, where Cabin the uh, Fever? Cabin Fever they're becalmed, and then they start dancing, and it all just becomes a bunch of hubbub, and there's a wild wild music playing. And I had uh, I asked, I don't remember whether I did the left hand and Bill did the right. I think that may have been what we did, but we we just sort of clasped our hands together like you would make a steeple. And then Bunsen's dance was that he would wind along with his hands pointing in different directions in sort of an S shape and follow that, follow his own hands. And that was his dance. <laughs> and Bill and I both got a big kick out of it because it's a very Bunsen-y thing to do is take, yes. take a really close up look at what a dance could be <laughs> based right. on two fingers, right? It's just so, it's so ridiculous. And so we had fun with that. And then there was another moment that didn't involve me, but it was, uh, um, when um, Bill was doing Jerry's right hand for Blind Pew, and Blind Pew is talking to Long John Silver, 
I'm sorry, I'm switching off to another movie. You cut no, it no, that's like we it. love hearing all this. Yeah, but uh, when at one point, um, Bl uh, Blind Pew is trying to sort of seduce Long John into some idea. I can't remember what the script was exactly, but Bill, doing the right hand, took a lock of of uh, Long John Silver's hair and just twirled it around his finger, <laughs> which was just inspired. This is. This is right-handing at its best, <laughs> and it can be it can be a really high art form, even though it's thought of as, uh, you know, a beginner's job. Right. When you get somebody who's a master like Bill, adding that kind of texture and detail, it's just brilliant. And of course, Jerry Nelson knew that, and he just said, "Do whatever you want," you know. Mm. But it was oh god, it was just perfect. Mm. So, have you heard the uh, the fan rumor that Beaker is? is flipping Scrooge the middle finger as, as they leave the house in that scene? No. First of all, I'm not on the internet in any <laughs> right. capacity except uh, Zooms and emails. So I don't know about that. I, I don't follow social media at all. Okay. Yeah, um, I'm pretty so sure people know. are just misinterpreting because I guess Beaker only has four fingers. Right. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure it's, it, it's his index finger, yeah, but people mistake it for his middle finger. Also, yeah, people just want that. What's yeah, that? right. I said also people just want like, oh, there's secretly <laughs> dirty stuff in the movie, you know, yeah. or whatever. You know, there's it's hardly ever happened. And the reason is that it's too easy to do that. Sure. It's, it's not respectful to the characters. It comes up from time to time where somebody who is not experienced writing for us will think, oh, I've got to make this more adult. Mm. And I've, I've got to I've got to add something that's a little off color here. But it's a crutch, right? It's. I mean, we can sure. we can very easily make them as blue as you want, and and you get a few cheap, easy laughs. Right. But um, the bigger challenge is to make them work as characters, make them funny, make them heartfelt, make them touch the audience, while you're not offending people. You're not offending right. anyone. And some of the best Muppet stuff can appeal to adults without being vulgar. Absolutely. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because it's character work, really. It's just character work. The other big, I mean, your other big character who's in the movie is Zoot, who has, I guess, one big scene at the Fozziewig Christmas party. Did you guys approach the Electric Mayhem any differently? Like being the, the Victorian era Christmas band or what? I mean, like, was that anything? I don't, I don't know. They were, in, of course, they were in costume. They were in period costumes. I don't recall enough about that it was it was uh sort of like an added detail in the film to see those guys sure. there at the party mm -hmm. but i don't re i don't have a recollection of thinking about it beyond costume you know and of course that wasn't my job the workshop right right amazing right. costumes for the movie and i guess actually right. animal is the only one that has any any lines right uh i i think so <laughs> <laughs> I, haven't seen I think it. that's right. I haven't seen it in quite a while now. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Zoot, Zoot has a line in Treasure Island. He says, I don't get it. Are we with the Pirates of the Frog Cap? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the story with Zoot was I always, on the Muppet Show, tried to give Zoot's lines to, uh, to, to Floyd. <laughs> because sure. I was 27 or 28. And I, I knew I was playing a guy. I thought of Zoot as a 50-year-old burnt-out sax player who lives in a transient hotel you know and he's he just is on the road all the time he's never had a place to live and i i just couldn't relate to that i i, I just thought i'm not that guy i'm not old enough to be playing zoot and for years 
I, I would just try to get out from under any dialogue for him. And then a strange thing happened. There was a premiere for the, uh, uh, for the Muppet movie at the Leicester Square Odeon Theater in London. And afterward, there was a party at the Cafe Royale. And I was standing at the party, and this little guy in a gray suit came running up to me. He was maybe like eight inches shorter than I was. And he said, hey, they tell me you're the guy who does Zoot. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, man, I tell you, I've known so many sax players just like him. He's an incredible character. He said, I'm Sammy Kahn. And he was no kidding. Dude, yeah, the great Sammy Kahn, songwriter of like half the things we grew up with, half the things Sinatra sang. And I just <laughs> absolutely fell over. Yeah. I, I just absolutely fell over. I couldn't believe that he knew this guy that I was trying to avoid doing. You know? well, so you were doing something, right? I was doing something accidentally, right. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so but now we, we're going to be doing a series with the Mayhem Band, and I have something in mind for Zoot that will um, be, I, I, I think, interesting to try. I can't tell you much about it. Oh, I can't nice. tell you anything about it really yet, but stay tuned yeah we're looking forward to that yeah i, I have, I have something in mind that i think will be consistent with his character as we know him but we'll also open him up to that too cool great what 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 a fun tease i'm so yeah. excited yeah <laughs> so you do have another character in the movie that that was new to the movie and that's um bettina cratchit <laughs> bettina and belinda are these ridiculous pig twin sisters i guess of, yeah. of carmen and piggies Bettina and Belinda were Steve and I making fun of Frank. Right. They were trying to make little girl versions of Miss Piggy's voice. And, uh, and, and also there was something about repeating each other's lines. I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, either that was written or we just added it to, to further try to, to, you know, to, to further to humiliate Frank if possible. Oh, is that when Piggy is giving the toast and they're repeating what she's saying oh yeah that's right yeah that's very funny yeah yeah yes i can't i oh i can almost remember that dialogue but not quite and well and also i think it's one of the funniest moments in the movie when piggy can't can't tell the two daughters apart oh yeah yeah and then and then you know she calls she calls the other one bettina or whatever and then you in this like high-pitched funny funny you know rugby tiger-ish voice say i'm bettina and I think it's so funny because it's like you like you say, it's you making fun of Frank and you can tell like I, I love it. I think it's so funny. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, a lot of what we did was play almost almost all of it was play. And this has become because Jim liked play. Um, speaking of Frank, he's not in the movie a whole lot. Was the mood on the set different when he was there? <laughs> Are you trying to get me into trouble? <laughs> oh no, no, no! Yeah, I didn't mean was... that in a bad way. Of well, course. we've heard we've heard stories about like when the few days that he was on set for Muppets from Space because he was busy with other projects. Like he would show up, and that like a sort of hush would fall over some of like the crowd of puppeteers. Oh, like younger. that might have been true of the extra puppeteers who didn't work with him all the time. Right, that, yeah, that was it. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, we didn't mean you and Jerry. No, not, no, yeah, not and That was yeah. the case on, on Muppets from Space. He was busy with other things, and he came in for a week or two here and there, uh, once or twice. And on this movie, though, he was an executive producer of Christmas Carol. Right. And so he was there for the entire time, and he was helping Brian. Yes. And 
you know, lending his uh, experience. Okay, that's that's good to know. I mean, you know, because Piggy, Piggy, I mean, Fozzie kind of has one scene. Sam has one scene. Piggy's in it a little bit, but you, you know what I mean. Like his characters aren't on screen all that much. So, so I yeah, I think it was fortuitous. It was just fortuitous. I mean, Sam's scene is is something that I I always anticipate when I watch the movie because, oh, yeah. because of his reading, the, the genius of having Sam just get all excited about business. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's great. Such a good thing for a capitalist like Sam. You know, he was just relished it. It was so exciting to him. And, you know, this was something that was in the script and it was fairly innocuous. Most performers would have just delivered it as a normal line, but Frank saw the character in it and, and brought it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he really turns it into something funny. Um, but it does seem like all of you, the, the core performers, are like, I mean, I guess this is what you usually do is you're all also playing whatnots and chickens and rats and fruits and vegetables mm -hmm. throughout the whole thing. Are there, were there any of those that are that were particularly memorable that, that you can remember? Oh, I don't know. There were the pigs on the street the, in, the, in the opening shot. Uh, they've, they've just finished breakfast, and I think I ad-libbed something about well, what do we do now? And some, I said, well, let's do let's have lunch. Right. And, and so that seemed like a good pig thing, so that stayed in. Uh, we also shot with them in rain with their umbrellas. And so oh, yeah. when that happens, we get wet. Um, because we're underneath in various positions and we're wearing ponchos and so forth. But, mm. You know, a drop will hit your, your forehead and go down across your eyeball and then down into your shirt. And, and you yes. know, it's hard to keep your mind on what you're trying to do under those wet circumstances. The film is all shot indoors on sound stages. Is that right? Yes. Entirely on, in, a, in a created environment. Val Strasvik was the set designer. He was somebody that we'd worked with before in Toronto. And uh, just a wonderful guy, and also a really erudite scenic designer. You know, he, he sort of created this world that was scaled in such a way that the puppets could inhabit it, but also adults like Scrooge could inhabit right. that world. It was a little smaller scale. It made Scrooge look like a, a more of a looming figure, mm. but um, it was Dickensian London, but the architecture was a little wonky. You know, if you look at the scenery, the, the set design for that and the production design, it's just extraordinary. Yeah, it's it's kind of theatrical, yeah. which is it's a departure from the first three movies where it was very much like this is the real world. And this mm -hmm. group of Muppets is sort of coming into it, whereas in this one, it's it's this sort of Dickensian world that's populated equally by humans and Muppets. Which is another reason I really like doing literature. You know, yeah. I like having the characters play roles because you do create a world for them. Right. The uh, big question when we did the the first three movies was, can we take these Muppet characters outside of this Muppet theater into the real world? And what will they look like? Will they look like dolls or will they look, or will we believe them? And of course, there's the famous footage that you, you can see somewhere. I think maybe it's YouTube, I'm not sure. But the uh, famous footage of uh, Frank and Jim doing Fozzie and, and Kermit and a little bit of Piggy yes. out in the English countryside. They literally just went out after lunch or after the wrap. I think it was lunchtime. And uh, uh, Jim Frawley, the Muppet movie director, brought a 16 millimeter camera and they just went out and set up by cow fields and ad-libbed things just to see what the characters looked like outside. 
and it was kind of fun and it it seemed to it seemed to work okay so that's what propelled the next three films but this film really needed to be in its own special world because it was mm. a historical period film yeah yeah it, and it works really well and i guess it's a similar kind of thing in treasure island too now that i think about it it is absolutely that was all done uh those were all shot in, on a stage all right well we have i think covered most of the major topics we wanted to talk about um one thing is there's a lot of really interesting puppetry tricks in the movie do you have any thoughts about any of that stuff um like the for example the rats closing up the counting house did you did you work on that scene are you playing rats there i did that was a whole uh and also the musical numbers in the counting house too um the special rigs that were done by um people like tom newby franz fazekas uh for the rats you know one rat using another as a bellows to stoke the or, or to, you know to blow on the coal fire yeah um the window shade the broom all these special effects were things that were sort of planned out in advance as a little set piece uh but you know the reason we could do those things is you know brian was obviously directing his first feature film so he was really busy but we had the depth of talent we had all these people in the workshop who could make these things happen and right. I, I don't remember exactly how all those bits uh, uh were created um but but you know because of the bench we had jerry jewel could write anything and it would it would happen because we had this incredible designers and builders and we had special effects people you know anything could be done if you're willing to spend the time sure yeah yeah that's well, a lot of fun what, to watch oh yeah it is it's just lovely lovely in Mother's Take Manhattan which was directed by Frank Oz um he asked Jim if he would uh, create a montage of rats cooking in the coffee shop kitchen right the diner kitchen and so Jim sort of storyboarded this and worked out how it all worked and he worked with Foz Fazekas to build all of the rigs where rats were you know riding uh, egg beaters and mixing pancake batter and then skating around on the griddle on a piece of butter a pad of butter so between Jim and Foz and and Foz's guys Tom Newby and uh and the other guys um all of it got built and it made, became a wonderful little a little sequence in the movie and so in this case having the rats close up the counting house was a sort of a similar little little piece yeah it feels like kind of a sequel to that yeah and and again as you said earlier this was all of the muppet people coming back together long-time associates colleagues who worked together over and over for many years and again whatever whatever was asked for could be done you know <laughs> that's one of the joys of working on this on these things you know that we have we just have the most wonderful people to work with yeah um i do just want to also ask uh if you have any opinions on the uh the when love is gone um situation where it was cut from the theatrical release sometimes it's in the movie sometimes it's not well i'm sorry that it was cut because sure. it, it first of all um yeah meredith was a young girl at the time she was like 19 or something and she had this incredible voice absolutely pitch perfect and um the song was a profound song of loss written by paul williams it was absolutely all perfect but then for some reason i think 
I think uh, possibly the Disney folks felt that kids would get bored. That's what we've heard. Yes, they plot they slowed down. Thought, it was, yeah, it was one of those decisions that gets made later when I'm off doing something else. I don't know right. how it happens, but uh, uh, it was really really sad to see it go. And whenever I do see it, I'm happy because it's a beautiful song and it's beautifully performed. And you know, it's also Michael Caine's acting once again that is absolutely earth shattering you know he, mm-hmm. he, he learned how to cry and you can also he can keep his eyes from blinking and he can also really cry on command and it he's, is he's such a master a of eye control yeah Apparently. It's, a, it's just a powerful scene and i'm always happy when it's in yeah i think just maybe in the past year brian henson said they had relocated the master for that so it'll be restored for the Disney Plus version, hopefully, at some point in the future. Good, good. So, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing is in the opening credits, the great Gonzo as Charles Dickens comes up in the opening credits. Do you remember how, or do, or do do you know how that happened? That the characters are credited like they're actors in the movie. It was written that way. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, so is Jerry Jewell? You think? Uh, I don't remember how that decision got made. You know, that would be Frank Oz too, as executive producer, mm. you know, just the particular way of crediting on our movies is always, is always part of the creation of the movie. And uh, I, I don't right. actually have a story for you about that. I don't know. Sure. Okay. Yeah. We were just curious. I just, I just, yeah. Just curious in case you did. I'm just hypothesizing, but it might've been used. It might've been done that way because otherwise, we wouldn't know that Gonzo was Charles Dickens. Hmm. You know, the whole the whole scene was written with Rizzo saying Mr. Dickens and and, and introducing Gonzo and vice versa. Right. So, they, they they never say Gonzo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, we, right. We, yeah. We had to establish. I know that that would have been one of Jerry's missions to establish that this isn't Gonzo. This is Charles Dickens. Yeah. Right. So that I mean that brings us down to the end. I think. But are there any other thoughts you have about Muppet Christmas uh, before we go? Well, it's probably, it is my favorite of all of our movies because I think it's about such a powerful subject. It's a redemption story. It's philosophically aligned with with everything that Jim believed and that our whole organization believes, which is all these values about tolerating each other and and supporting each other um, and growing and you know, I, I just think it has a wonderful message. I, I don't have a very coherent answer for this, but I don't really, I really love this piece of literature. And I love the fact that we got to do something profound, you know, that had a real serious meaning. Sure. Yeah. And we, I mean, we, we all love it too. Yes. You know? Yes. It's a, it's a must see every uh, Christmas season. Yeah. I feel that way. I feel that way about yeah. Emmett Otter too. Oh Yeah. I, oh, I yeah, love Emmett Otter. These are two of my favorite things. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, I would love to keep you here and ask you a bunch of questions about playing the fish in that special. <laughs> but we well, maybe we'll do another of one of these about that because that was a that was that was a wonderful moment in time. You know, that was after our first season of the Muppet Show. It was a period of growth for me because suddenly I was able to ad lib with with Wendell Porcupine in in character. I had built sure, some, yeah. of the, some of the characters for the movie. Um, so it, it meant a lot to me to be a part of it. But I think it was also 
again, it was a piece of literature. It was it was a children's story by Lillian and Russell Hoban. Right. And uh, a beautiful, beautiful story that paralleled the gift of the Magi. So again, it was another piece of literature that was profound. And while we could be funny, we could also deliver something that's very heartfelt. And that was a big part of the Muppets, you know, to be able to play a sweet story for real and to be innocent, you know? So yeah, let's have another one. We'll right. talk about that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. What it's the 20, it's the 30, no, what is it? 45th anniversary this Christmas. So be a perfect time. Oh, wow. Is it really 70? It was, uh, but thank you, 77, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So that's 45. I mean, we shot it in uh, February, March, April, somewhere in there of 77. And it was on that Christmas. Right. Yeah. Oh, it was so much fun to work on that too. It's another one of those worlds that was created. Yeah. Actually that has a kind of similar where it just feels like an entire world created just for those characters. Yeah. And I think that those sets were done by another Canadian set designer named Bill Beaton. I think Bill uh, did that one. And again, it's a, it's, it's all of a piece. The buildings are in scale to the characters. We have the river. The river went all the way across studio D at uh, CFTO in Toronto. The, uh, Seasons changed during the thing. You know, we shot. Yeah, yeah. We shot for, I guess, about a week in uh, fall. It was set up as fall with the lighting and the plants and everything. And then over the weekend, it was redressed to winter, where, we, mm. which is how we shot the rest of that outdoor set. And uh, oh man, I just have such feelings for that piece. Oh yeah. I think I like the ones that have real legitimate emotion. You know. Sure. sure. Yeah, that's yeah. something the Muppets are really good at. Yeah. Oh, what an honor. I tell you, I'm so lucky to have been able to do this. Well, and I mean, we appreciate it so much. And when I say we, I mean the entire audience. Oh, yes. You know, it's like, that, I mean, you know, thank you for coming on our podcast today, but thank you more for all the wonderful entertainment over the years. Uh, yeah. Really. Well, Absolutely. you know what? I, I want to not just thank you two, certainly want to thank uh, Ryan and Anthony, but I want to thank all of, our audience for this wonderful career because you know you can't you don't get to do this unless people are watching and that was just the biggest and most wonderful serendipity of my life except for having kids (laughs) well that's a perfect note to end on i think thank you so much for joining us dave thank you it was really a thrill yes thank you you were always in our hearts and we even though you never hear from me, I want you to know that I, I'm always <laughs> watching and I'm always appreciating what you do. Oh, thanks. Thank you so much. And listeners, we'll be back with another regular episode next week. But in the meantime, you can check out Tough Pigs on the internet, Facebook, Twitter. We're all over the place. Unlike Dave, we're on every social media. <laughs> uh, you can you can support us on Patreon if you feel so moved. You can email us here at the podcast at along at toughpigs.com. You can follow Ryan on Twitter at me, Ryan Rowe. You can follow Ryan on Letterboxd at Movies Are Neat. And you can follow me on Letterboxd, Letterboxd at Zeppo Marxist. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. See you right back here next week for another episode of Moving Right Along. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>